I mean, taking something from this idea and disrupting an industry and thinking you can bring it to life is really, really special. Okay, welcome back to the Marketing Playbook, presented by Details Interactive and Parity and Element. Here you'll take away three game-winning marketing plays every episode to take back to your team. I'm your host, Mark Friedman, and my career has been focused on direct-to-consumer marketing, direct mail, physical retail, and digital commerce. This is episode number 89, and today's guest is PJ Oleksak. PJ is the CEO at Nuts.com, where she's leading all aspects of business growth and execution. She's had an amazing career in finance and the food industry, and she shares some great insights on how important having a strong mentor is to your personal growth. Once this show is done, you'll be running to nuts.com to place an order. Before we get started, a quick thank you as always to Max Brandstetter of the Wild Business Growth Podcast for producing this episode. You can reach him at max at maxpodcasting.com to help bring your podcast to life. Let's open the playbook. Ready, break. Well, hello, everyone. Thank you for joining the Marketing Playbook podcast. Today, I'm joined by PJ Oleksak. PJ is the Chief Executive Officer of Nuts.com, where she leads the company's overall strategy, as well as the day-to-day -day operations for its 540 employees nationwide. PJ joined Nuts.com as president in 2021. Since then, she's had the privilege of building the company's multi-year strategy, developing business lines for gifting and B2B, and building the leadership team designed to scale Nuts. Uh, com to three to five times its current size. Previously, PJ was the chief business officer of Slice, where she led Slice's go-to-market operations and innovation teams and was responsible for developing and driving the growth strategy for the nation's leading provider of technology and marketing solutions for independent pizzerias. Well, I'm hungry and it's Friday morning, very <laughs> early, and I'm thinking about pizza and, and nuts and dried fruit and everything in between. Welcome to the show, PJ. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, uh, I know this has been a long time coming, as you said. I, I appreciate you being uh, persistent uh, with me and sticking with me. I, I think this would be a great story uh, to share with the listeners. Um, we'll get into you know kind of your background because for those that listen to the show, um, you know we try to give um, folks. Um, a background first story of of the guest, but we're recording today. It's December first, two thousand twenty three. Did you make it through Black Friday, Cyber Monday, in one piece? Oh, I love this time of year. Honestly, it is it is Nuts dot com Super Bowl. So so two two things really. It's our Super Bowl at Nuts dot com. It's such a busy season for us, um, but it's also just a really joyful time of year. I personally love this time of year. Um, but the intensity of our busy season, like it drives me. It's just really exciting. Food is fun. The team is ready. And it's really just great how this organization rallies together to deliver for our customers. So I, it's such a special fun time for me, even though it's really busy, but yeah, it was a, it was a fantastic Black Friday and Cyber Monday. We're excited how the season's kicking off. Okay, that's great. So let's go back. Um, you know, you've spent a lot of time in the food industry. You, that first story of of PJ, where'd you grow up? Anything in in kind of that, those early days that suggested what your career might end up to be? It's so funny because I actually I grew up in upstate New York, a very small town. In fact, a hamlet. 
45 minutes west of Albany. So I grew up in very small town country. And I think there's really two key factors in my life that you don't know it at the time, but in retrospect, really foreshadowed my future. I think first is really, I'm the youngest of nine children. Um, I have seven older brothers. And so I, I grew up always with you know, boys around me, pushing me around, bigger than me, et cetera. And so I actually started my career in finance. I've always loved numbers. Um, I remember I used to play a store um, and always want to like store the cash and and do things like that. So I've always loved handling money um, and really doing things like that. But so I started my career in finance, banking and then private equity, all very traditionally male dominated industries. But I've always been very comfortable working in a room full of men older than me because I had those seven brothers. It never phased me. It was never a hurdle. It was just very, very natural. So that was one thing. I think the other thing that really was foreshadowing and and shaped me is that my grandmother and mother were actually entrepreneurs in food. Um, My grandmother had two Italian pizzerias and my mother would later in life have two Italian delis. So, which I grew up working in as a teenager. And so neither ever had a college education. You know, they got married young, had families and then built these businesses and just had a hunger and drive to break barriers and be, do better for themselves and their families. And I think something, there's just something innate in me, the passion for food and then being a strong female leader. Like it was, there's something in my DNA for sure. Yeah, it's amazing. You know, I've done uh, close to 90 shows now and so many times when I ask that question, it's it's kind of natural for folks. They they are able to link together something in their background to what they ultimately decided to do, especially the entrepreneurs. You know, you'd be surprised, you know, how many of them they had a family figure or role model mm-hmm. that was also an entrepreneur. So, um very interesting that you've had a similar type of experience. Um, you mentioned, you know, the background in finance. I also got my start in finance. I was an auditor for one of what was then one of the big eight accounting firms and ultimately moved into marketing. And oftentimes I get the question, geez, how did you move from finance into marketing? So let oh, me throw- it makes perfect sense to me, actually. <laughs> yeah. So let, let me ask that question of you, um, you know, how what was that transition like from finance and the numbers into what you've done in your career? Yeah, I mean, I I spent the first decade of my career in finance, and I think I've always loved numbers, always. Um, I double majored in finance and accounting. I just, I can't get enough. Figuring out how the numbers work and understanding trends and how things drive is just, it's it's how my brain processes information. And I think the training and rigor you develop working in private equity is just incredible. It's demanding and it's so interesting. So you're thinking about the macro environment, you're thinking about different industries, you're understanding customers, the importance of strong management teams and being able to really fluently kind of understand numbers and trends, um, both high and low. So I think digesting, I personally learned early on in my career how to digest businesses through numbers. And I think that's really helped me understand the story and the opportunities for any company I step into. Um, and even when you're thinking about your career journey, it's very it, I'm, it's easy to kind of process the macro, the company and how it all fits together. And if I really believe in the direction and where it can go. So it was a great training. Yeah, I, I've always believed that you know there's no better way to understand a business than through the P and L and mm-hmm. understanding each of the lines and what drives them. Um, you know, it really uh, gives you some perspective. Um, let's talk about you know an early role at Fresh Direct. 
Yeah. Uh, maybe, you know, tell folks what that business was and, and your role there. Yeah, Fresh Direct. So it's really interesting. And I'll, I'll give a little bit more context. Um, when I crossed over to Fresh Direct, it was actually a growth equity investment at the private equity fund I was a part of. So I knew of Fresh Direct. It wasn't my it wasn't my investment. It was my boss's investment. Um, but he was the first non-family investor in Fresh Direct. And he just really believed in it. it. Fresh Direct at the time when we had invested in it, it was just, it was building online grocery and really focused on fresh food delivery in the greater New York City area. And I think, you know, Fresh Direct was started and founded on the heels of Webvan and some other businesses that really had not been successful with fresh food delivery. But the the focus with Fresh Direct and the mission was really how do you make great food really easy to get and disrupt the supply chain so that you're getting a higher quality product delivered to the customer. So we're, we were partnering with farms and fisheries and butchers and really understanding like what is the demand and how can we process it and, you know, get that that food delivered to our facility. Instead of when you think about the grocery train chain, you have food going to a distribution center, then it goes to the distribution center, then it sits on the shelf, then the customer comes and buy it off the shelf. For us, we were getting it direct and then it was coming to your house very quickly. Um, so really adding a lot of shelf life and getting the product fresher to the end user. Um, when I joined, Fresh Direct had a great leadership team. They had fantastic functional experts, but the founder who had been building and then running the company for many years at that point needed a partner to really think about expansion and what's coming next and not distracting the core because online grocery, um, and I think, you know, it's obviously evolved so much since that time, but online grocery is just a very intense business. It's super lean margins and it's very hard particularly when you talk about fresh food and we had kitchens where we were actually cooking and making ready to heat meals, things like that. So he needed a partner that wasn't going to distract the core, but could help him think about future and expansion of the business and where to grow and go next. Um, and so I really learned from him how to be an operator. So I spent the first year really cutting my teeth and understanding how does it work to be in marketing? What are the metrics? What are the KPIs? Like how, how are things being driven? How does it work in a plant manufacturing? How are the logistics measured? So I had the privilege and I really operated more like a chief of staff in my first year, just learning the business from the CEO's position. And the amount I learned in that one year, I just, I'm forever grateful. I'm still very close to the founder um, to this day. He's been a phenomenal mentor to me, um, but it was incredible. I mean, it's, I think probably 10 years of learning in one. Um, and then I really, once I knew enough, I was able to start to cut my teeth and help the company build. And so first area of opportunity was really figuring out B2B. We knew at Fresh Direct, which was predominantly a planning business. So you could order food online and it would be delivered to your house at the earliest at that point in time. And this was, you know, 2012. Earliest you could get it would be next day. But most people were planning out their week. It was a planner's type of business. You were thinking about when when is it convenient for you to get your groceries delivered? How does it work? And you think about planning your food for the week. But we knew because I'd sat, sat in all those operating meetings and I had heard our transportation team complaining that, you know, in New York City, they couldn't hit their productivity metrics because these businesses and these freight aid elevator buildings were ordering and it took twice as long and it couldn't be productive and we shouldn't allow these customers to buy from us. So my first mandate was to figure out if there was actually a B2B opportunity um, and really digging into like, who is that customer? What is that market opportunity? What are the unique aspects of that? What do they like to buy? What is the service that they need? And lo and behold, actually digging into all of those attributes, I then went on an internal roadshow as we understood, again, what the P&L could look like for this business. And I said, 
to my transportation partners. I'm like, guys, I get it. It's half as productive from a delivery standpoint, but the unit economics of that delivery, the basket is twice as big. The delivery fee is you know, twice as large. And actually the unit economics, it was a 700 bips more profitable business unit and the fastest growing area of the company at the time. And so helping everyone and then going around the team and helping the merchants understand, you know, I, they were super focused on fiddlehub firms and very specialty, great stuff that our fantastic consumers really were focused on. I'm like, actually, you need to care about cases of bananas and oranges all year long because this business customer, that's what they care about. So really helping them understand how it all fits together and then how does it service their book of business? Um, so built out the B2B division and then really the structure as the head of expansion was I would assess a market opportunity, figure out how we were going to play, build the, the multi-year kind of plan, build the team, the structure, hire a GM, and then they would report into me and I would manage the P&L in that way. So the first area was the B2B. Then the next area and the assumption was geographic expansion. At that time, we were predominantly in New York, a little bit in New Jersey, a little bit of Connecticut, had just gone into Philadelphia when I had first joined the company. We really didn't have like a great expansion playbook, like how to do it in a really structured way once you got too far from New York City, where you really had to build the brand and start with a whole net new customer base. And so the assumption was we're going down to Washington, D.C. How do we do that? That was my mandate. Well, in doing research and thinking about that opportunity, and this was, gosh, the summer of 2013 now, it became really clear that even in our own backyard, while we're thinking about these expansion opportunities and how we were going to build the brand geographically, which was always really important to us, there was still a lot of demand right in our backyard. And so we started asking questions and thinking about like, why? Even we had so many weekly and biweekly customers in that business. We're like, why does anyone not shop? Even these super loyals, why are they not shopping at Fresh Direct? And lo and behold, it was because like they run out of fresh. While they're buying their full grocery basket with us, they still might have a fill-in need. The end of the week, someone's coming over, they ran out of something, they have to just run to Whole Foods and get a couple of things. And so I was like, you know what, there might be an opportunity for small pop-up shops in New York City or some other way to go about this. And this is all going to connect um, to just how I think about building businesses overall. But so we did research, we did market research, we had this idea of, all right, so is it geographic expansion or do we should we be doing pop-up shops in New York City? Is there another way to augment our growth? And we did research across the customers and the opportunity for the Eastern Seaboard. And lo and behold, and again, this is summer 2013 before the on-demand market blew up um, or really had even gotten started. We did the research and said, you know, what are you looking to buy? When are you looking to buy it? How are you thinking about consuming it? All of that from a grocery standpoint. And two-thirds of the market said, even if I write a list, which is a planning-like activity, I want my food same day. I, I get all this research, and this is one data insight in a deck. I mean, you know, I had ton, hundreds of thousands of dollars of market research. And I sit across from the founder, and I'm like, all right, here's the headline. We launch next year in Boston. Fresh Direct launches next day residential grocery delivery. I'm like, does anybody pick it up? Like, is that enough? And he was like, wow. You know, I'm like two-thirds of the market once at same day. And at that point, we started what would someday become Food Kick by Fresh Direct. And it started with an insight on a piece of paper. And it wasn't a pop-up shop. It was going to be a delivery business, but it was for a different consumer, a different mindset, because Fresh Direct had done a fantastic job getting that planner, that person that's thinking about their week. But particularly in urban markets, 
And with the younger demographics coming up, we called it a millennial mindset. It wasn't actually an age, but it was a way of living. There was a different target customer that lived a different way. And we're never going to be able to plan our week. That just didn't work for them. And so the food kick by Fresh Direct, our on-demand grocery business, we built together. I was employee number one for a long time. But the reason why we branded it differently and as a sister brand, it was a whole nother company. We had a different brand, a different, we launched app, mobile app first. We had different shopping experience, different product assortment, different picking packing facilities, different logistics and distribution strategy. Um, so it was incredible. It was so much fun. One of the hardest things um, I probably ever had the privilege of doing in my career, um, but we took that from an insight on a piece of paper to a hundred million dollar business in three years. Um, and it was, and, I think, and it was early, you know, um, you know. Oh the, yeah, you were positioned well for a pandemic. <laughs> oh, I mean, I I want to, I just want to cry when I think about like, oh my gosh, <laughs> if you had had the facilities all built out across the country, what that business would have been, um, because we because and the other thing about what I learned at my time at Fresh Direct is really it was a very data-driven and financially savvy organization because it's so lean from like a margin standpoint. Um, and so in order to do on-demand, you really had to be maniacal about the unit economics. Um, and so we actually did it profitably, which you know I would say that many have come and gone since then. <laughs> that did not, but the market's also gotten more competitive. There's so many questions that that come out of that. I I, I tell a story, you know, about the the food business. Um, we live in New Jersey. My wife, uh, my kids are 30 years old. We shopped in a supermarket chain called Kings forever. Mm. All right, and yep. you know, when my kids were born, my wife would go in there um, and buy all the things that we needed. You know, food for the kids and you know Earth's Best and all that stuff. And you know, there were, even in those days, they had some way of knowing. You know, that you had a card. They keyed in the you know your number, right? And they were building up all this information, but they were doing nothing with it. And I even know, the crazy. supermarket chains today, for the most part, even the more progressive ones, even a Whole Foods, for example, where they've got this big tie, you know, obviously ownership by Amazon. The amount that they push out to us based upon what we are doing with them is incredibly insufficient. Maybe maybe insufficient is the wrong word, but it's just not nearly as analytically and marketing focused as one might expect. Element is an award-winning advertising agency optimizing e-commerce campaigns around profit. In fact, they've helped 13 of their customers get acquired, with one selling for nearly $800 million and one that IPO'd recently. Plus, they were ranked as the 12th fastest growing agency in the world by Adweek. If you're an e-commerce business that needs help scaling your ads profitably, check them out at element.com, spelled E-L-U-M-Y-N-T.com. So as you think about, you know, your your current business, and we'll come back to, to nuts.com, how are you using data to help you determine, you know, predictive capabilities, you know, things like that? Well, I mean, so I would say, even though we're, gosh, 23 years old, 24 years old, as a company, we're still in our infancy, even. And it's actually something that you know, prior to me stepping in as CEO, but even in my role as president, we started working on really closely is really how do we unlock our data and our power? Um, because I, I don't even think nuts had been. And I think it's amazing because we do have all this data where we know what is your habit? 
Um, what is your cadence? And so like I, what we can do and what we're on the journey of is we serve you up obviously recommendations and relevant information based on how you've shopped with us before, but we can do so much more, right? Like, it's not just about like, we email you when you have a likely cadence of you run out of something that we know you love. That might be a favorite based on your ordering patterns. We can do things like that. Um, but there's so much more. And I would say like, as I think about our sales team and how we've evolved that because we didn't have, we've built out B2B um, during my time here at Nuts is I've helped the team think about like, look at your customers' habits, develop automated kind of triggers so that if a B2B customer is off habit, you reach out to them, right? We have account managers, things like that. It's like you check in with them. So there's different ways to not only serve them up relevant information, but it's all about timely and topical as well as, you know, not being creepy and bugging them. I think that's a tricky balance with data today is, I mean, gosh, I'll say something in my kitchen and all of a sudden I get an ad on Instagram and I'm like, that's interesting since targeting is supposed to be so difficult nowadays. My, my wife talks about this all the time and, you know, she actually tries to, you know, test it. You know, she starts talking about a particular <laughs> brand and, you know, that she's watching her phone to see when, you know, the ad shows up. It's, um, I think the creepy part is, is very interesting. I want to come back to nuts because I think, you know, what you guys are doing is, is super interesting. But before we, we, we do that, you know, you worked with a founder, you know, um, as you mentioned in Fresh Direct, nuts.com is a family business. Perception, not so easy to be the outsider working with a founder or a family business, true or false? Yeah, it's so, it's really interesting because I think that this is something that is just, I don't know if it's a superpower or a skill or if I'm personally a masochist, but I have, I love working with founders, love. So I've had three tours of duty with different founders. I think they're such a special breed. I mean, taking something from this idea and disrupting an industry and thinking you can bring it to life is really, really special. And I think having built Food Kick from an insight, even though I did it within a broader organization, I have an immense amount of respect and appreciation for the passion, the care of building something that you know becomes your baby. Nuts.com is Jeff Braverman's baby. It was before he had kids, like he, he took his family's legacy and brought it online. I felt that way about Food Kick. It was my baby. And so I think the care and the respect that you have to give the business, a founder, the family, it's all very connected and similar. And I think um, the interesting dynamics when you think about family businesses is there's different types. And there's some family businesses. So like how I think about it is I look at the ownership dynamics whenever I'm considering it because Fresh Direct was family owned predominantly when I got there as well. Even though they had taken on some small growth capital from private equity, it was still predominantly family owned. And we brought that to fully private equity owned and then transitioned to a strategic. But like when you're coming in and looking at a family owned business, because I do think people just get scared by it. And, and that's probably short sighted. It's really dependent on the ownership dynamics and how decisions are made. Some family businesses, I would not touch. I could name some off the top of my head, but I won't because out of respect for those brands. But there are some family businesses where the ownership is really fragmented and the interests may vary. Whether it's there's older ownership who's learned to live off dividends and distributions and really they're, they're more risk adverse, et cetera. I'm a hungry growth executive. I like to build things. I like to disrupt industries. So for me, I have to believe there's a level of like, 
balanced risk-taking and hunger and that we're really aligned and that you're going to be able to move fast and make decisions. So at nuts, it's really the ownership isn't too fragmented. It's very clear how decisions are made. And I feel super, super empowered and they're trusting good people. And that really matters too. I'm very close to the family. I didn't know them before I ever interviewed with Jeff. It's a miracle we didn't know each other. We had so many people in, connect, in common in our networks in the food space. But I say I take those relationships very seriously and I respect their position and their history. I'm still the one learning. I will, I will take, a, if I get the privilege of running this company for a decade, I will still be learning what they've forgotten. They've been in this business so much longer than me. Um, so I just really respect that. And they really respect and empower me. It's a very, very good relationship. I personally act like an owner. It's who I am. It doesn't matter if I own, you know, <laughs> a one share of a company or, you know, uh, much more. I, I, it's just who I am. It's inherent in me. So they know they can trust me. Um, I'm going to treat this like they would. And, and I'm going to always be willing to listen um, to thoughts and ideas they have. So you joined in uh, 2021 as as president, and then recently uh, took on the uh, CEO uh, role. So congratulations mm -hmm. uh, for that. Uh, that's that's great to see. Obviously, they felt like you were making progress uh, with them. So what is the mandate in your role today? It's it's growth in total, but that will come in many ways. You're a direct to consumer business. You're a B two B business. Um, maybe give uh, the listeners some a quick overview of what channels you play in today. Yeah. So nuts.com was predominantly D to C. And so most of the business when I got here was direct to consumer people buying snacks and long tail pantry items and gifts for um, themselves or their, their friends and family um, for consumption. And what we've really been expanding into is B2B. Some of that's still through the website to direct to the businesses, though we have sales and account management now. Um, we've expanded to some, we're doing some small selling on Amazon. Um, and I think we will also continue to build out different business lines, like gifting will be elevated from what was a product category to more of a distinct uh, business opportunity. Because if you look at what Harry and David and other players have done, like it's just a massive market opportunity. And like, we've just, we have a right to win there, but I believe in omni-channel. And so we we have a tiny, tiny portion of our business through one of the companies we had acquired back in 2016, the Coppers brand. We have a tiny portion of our business that is actually in retail. And I think that we will build that out in a more meaningful way. Um, so when I think about, it's like there's a D2C opportunity, there's you know an opportunity in Amazon, and I think then there's an opportunity in retail. And I think that's really the evolving omni-channel playbook because at the end of the day, we are super passionate about our products, but we are super passionate about the customer. And even though I have been largely a pure play e-commerce executive as an operator, and I am truly an e-commerce consumer, I will I will buy anything online versus going to a store that's just a mile down the road. I'm also cognizant that not everyone else is yet. And so you really have to meet consumers where they are and think about what where do your products fit into their life? What problem are you solving? And then how do they think? about procuring those goods um, and making it really easy and frictionless for them. So I, I definitely believe in an omni-channel approach, um, but we're in kind of the infancy of our expansion beyond D2C. 
So there's channel expansion and then there's, you know, product category expansion and, and just products in general. Um, obviously, the core being nuts, but you sell lots of other products in a business like this and others that you've run. You, you have to hope that the customer gives you license to sell them things beyond what they know you for. How do you evaluate that and, and understand whether they will uh, allow you to do that? I mean, so I think some of it starts with really understanding who your target customer is, um, what are their pain points, what do they need, and then also what are you good at? Um, because if if you're not particularly good at it, you don't have any really differentiation. Um, it's hard to just say, well, buy this from us instead. Um, so we really focus on like when you think about the nuts.com business, and we actually have 6,000 SKUs on our site, which is massive. I mean, that's pretty darn close <laughs> to some of the online grocery business lines I've worked with. So 6,000 SKUs, we have a huge portion of our business that's nuts. Um, and we do different things with it, right? Different levels of salt, different seasonings, different roasting, et cetera, that we do in our own facility. And that's to meet different consumer needs. We procure because of our family history and the longstanding relationships we have with our vendors, we procure a higher quality, bigger, better product. So we are a premium provider from that sense, and we're maniacal about quality. And then we like we can you can get fifty percent salt if you are conscious of your health and but you want a little bit. Um, we do things like that that really meet different consumers for their different needs. And then we have lines of snacks. We do a ton of trail mixes, like we do custom trail mixes. We do you know all sorts of snacks and things like that um, to round out your pantry. And then we have chocolates and sweets, our coppers business, we do hand panning. So, so the level of care and the innovation, we are like Willy Wonka's chocolate factory. I don't, have you ever been to our facility? You have to come someday if you haven't. No, I, I honestly, I would love to. Um, it's thank amazing. You. Yeah, it's I amazing. would love to. It's, uh, it's pretty cool. I have a, my, my brother-in-law um, sells product online and he sells your, some of your product and he periodically will come over to the uh, distribution center and wait with his uh, hands open. And one of the nice gentlemen <laughs> there, are, you know, providing him his, his order, but yeah, yeah. It, it must be, it, you know, you, you talked about, this was one of the things that I was personally interested in the, you're procuring products, but you know, you're, it's, you're not just a distributor pass through, you're actually right. adding value to products yeah. that you buy, right? Yep, we do. And, and, and I think that's the and so coming back to like your question on like, how do you decide where to go? It's, it's natural adjacencies are always a place we think of starting. And then we talk to the customer, we do research, we test products, we see what they care about, we look at industry trends, right? Because sometimes the customer will tell you what they like, but they may not be thinking about what they might like tomorrow. So it's a combination of what's going on in the market, like how our flavor profile is evolving, what's new um, and coming. And you can see trends all over the country, going to different food shows, talking to um, others in the industry, and then really testing and, and developing them. Um, we've stayed true to our core, which is, you know, the nuts, the dried fruits, like, but our dried fruits, even we do half dried apricots. Like they're the juiciest, most delicious, amazing apricots you may ever eat. Similarly, our organic dried mango is phenomenal. So like there's certain things that, you know, we just how we source it or then what we do to it um, are really unique and actually position us to win. And then we think about, okay, well, 
are there different pack sizes? Like, do they want single serve so they can send it with their kid and do different value add like that in their school lunches because they want a healthier alternative? Um, and then how do you think about gifting? If you really love your products, which we do, you want to give them to other people. And so we've really built out like our different gifting assortments and things like that. So you can actually give it to other people you care about. Um, so it's like very natural extensions and thinking about where else do we have a right to play in the space? Um, but then also talking to the customer and and thinking about what they care about and what would they love to see from us and, and testing. And sometimes we'll get it wrong. Um, and you just, you test, learn, and you pivot. If something doesn't work, you move on from it. Or, but understand why it didn't work and maybe there's a way to tweak it or maybe there's, it's just a time to walk away. Thriving brands today have one thing in common. They make it a priority to understand their customers. Imparity uses AI to unify customer data and help businesses know exactly who their customers are and what they care about most. Find new customers, grow loyalty, get better return on ad spend and manage privacy compliance. An accurate, unified customer data foundation connected with the teams and tools that need it makes everything you do with customer data work better. Build your strategy on Amparity, the platform for customer data. Learn more at Amparity.com. In the time that you've been with the business, we are, we have been in the greatest inflationary uh, period that we've had in this country in, in a very, very long time. How is that, you know, challenged you uh, getting started and then business in general? Yeah, I mean, so I would say our cost of goods are going up just like everyone else's, right? Like cocoa, chocolate has seen massive spikes. And, and the reality is, is it's hard to pass it on to the customer as quickly as you may receive it. And then there's other places where, you know, we have contracts and we're kind of ordering out and you get some advantage from that. So there's, you see it a little bit from both sides. And we manage it, we're really financially responsible and we're just really careful with how we manage things. Um, balancing when we see a contract that's in a, a good opportunity, we we try to go long on things. And then there's other times where you just, you have to take it. And you think about like, are there ways where you can share that with the customer or do you just have to take it um, and, and balance that overall with your portfolio? So it's definitely been something that we have to work really hard. We built out strength um, we've done a lot of team building over the last two years. That was one of the reasons why Jeff brought me in was really to build the leadership team for the future. And so we've invested in our merchandising and our buying teams um, and gotten much more sophisticated with what we what we're doing there now. So like that's been really helpful too. So it's been an interesting time where we've been adding all of these skills and these skill sets and capabilities to the team so that as there's been changes where it's not just there's an inflationary environment, it's like, oh, well, Google and Meta have changed massively too. Like, thankfully we're adding talent to be able to like mitigate some of these things that potentially could be much more painful for other companies. And we've been able to keep it much more balanced, which is fortunate, but there's no doubt. And I think people are seeing it much more in Q3 and Q4 than even during the prior two years that I've been here, which is your consumers are feeling the pressure. You're seeing changes in consumer spend, but a business like ours, it's like we are, we are healthy snacks to fuel your life. We are that indulgent treat that just like is a bite of happy at the end of your day. We're that gift that's affordable. Um, it's not a luxury good that is so expensive. And really, when you even think about the gifts and the products, it's like it is stuff to share. It is stuff to nourish. It is stuff to indulge. Um, and it's it's within a price point where. Consumers will be like, all right, I may not be able to do everything, 
but I can do that for myself or I can do that for my family because of those different balance, whether you're on the health side of the equation or you want an indulgent treat that's affordable um, at the end of your day. So, so I think like the area where we play in food doesn't tend to be quite as extreme in terms of how customers pull back as some other kind of more luxury industries. Well, you're going to have to uh, promise me that you do a uh, episode two with me because uh, this is so interesting. I really enjoyed you know the conversation. You're lots of energy, lots of passion, and and clearly you have a very you know, very thoughtful uh, way that you want to help grow this business. So uh, you know, good luck on that. Uh, we're down to uh, the end of the show. I do a two minute drill, one okay. word answers, seven questions. You ready? Yes. Okay, a brand that you admire or that inspires you? Trader Joe's. Favorite app on your phone? Noom. Last website other than Amazon that you shopped from? Restaurant. Something that you're not good at but wish that you were? Prioritizing myself. Charitable organization that you're passionate about? Anything supporting children. If you had one superpower, what would it be? Not needing sleep. <laughs> ah, there you go. That's not a surprise to me after spending a half hour with you. Other <laughs> than family, what's your most prized possession? My engagement ring. Oh, that's nice. That's great. And uh, well, you come from a a very big family, so uh, getting beaten up by I was as you were talking at the beginning. I'm imagining you you around the dinner table with all those brothers and. Uh, uh, what that must have been like. But uh, this was um, really great, uh, really interesting. Um, I would definitely take you up on coming for a visit, you know, at some point uh, after the holiday when when time permits. I'd love Absolutely. to see your, op your, your operation. Thank you very much. Really appreciate you doing this with me and uh, wish you and the business and, and your family a very happy, happy uh, uh, holiday season. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. This was a pleasure. That's it. Today's game ball goes to PJ Oleksak for coming on the marketing playbook. To me, today's three game-winning marketing plays were as follows. Number one, as you likely know by now, my career started working in accounting and finance. I always felt that there was no better way to learn about a business than through the P&L. PJ makes a similar point. See the business through the numbers, she said. It gives you the opportunity to get the macro picture of the business and to see where the opportunities might be. So even if finance is not your thing, spend some time to learn how to read and interpret the numbers in a P&L. Number two, we spoke about working in a family business and how sometimes people get scared off from doing so. PJ has worked in a few different family businesses, and she explained that you need to understand the dynamics of the family, how decisions are made before you jump in. She also said that she acts like an owner in her business. Not everyone's wired that way, but whether you're in a family business or not, if you can demonstrate that you treat the business like your own, it's a good way to advance your career. And number three, data. We speak a lot about data on this show. After all, as a marketer, you need data as one component of helping you to better serve your customers. You need to not only have the data, but you need it in a format that's usable and will allow for you to make management actionable decisions. PJ also noted that you need to use the data in a way that's not creepy to your customers. Thank you, Playbook Marketers, for listening to another episode. If you want to check out more pages of the Marketing Playbook, make sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast spot and leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Until next time, the devil is in the details. <laughs>